0: to make everybody cry but just because this is the conclusion episode of the first season by the time we record the conclusion episode for season 2 this band will no longer be touring yeah. they'll no longer be recording mm-hmm. we'll just have you know this document of what they did for 20ish years yes um <clears throat> and there there's nothing else like it to fill that void yeah Now, maybe there doesn't need to be. I mean, for somebody now who is the same age that any of the three of us were whenever we first encountered this band, there may be some other group out there that is saying some things in a way that communicates right now that's different than how somebody needed to hear something in 2002. I mean, the cultural climate creates the conditions where any kind of communication means something.
1: Exactly. And it's a different
0: world than it was 20 years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true as we've talked about several times throughout this season, because the band is soon to be just an artifact, nothing new being produced. Like let's keep this train rolling as best we can, because that's how it remains relevant. And I, I do believe that there is relevance for people who have never heard this band today. This is not totally just something that was relevant at the turn of this century.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I like, I still care more than I should about the musical trajectory of the Beatles. And so do millions of other people. (laughs) And they definitely finished all their creative output before I was born. So by (laughs) by a long shot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you were saying, yeah, I mean, A to B life has a spiritual element to it for sure. I mean, it comes out pretty plainly in some of the lyrics and, and it sort of energizes and informs the dynamics of the relationship being depicted all over the place. And, and you could even argue that in terms of, um, of aligning this band with like a particular scene or particular ideology or whatever. I mean, they got signed to tooth and nail records. Um, they played at the cornerstone festival. They were perceived, even if they were sort of on the fringes of it, they were perceived as being in the Christian music scene when they Mm -hmm. got started. Yep. And even though A to B Life is in one sense the most sort of, I don't know what, like... Because it's a breakup album about this human relationship, it seems sort of the most distanced from the really forward spiritual themes that we get in later projects Mm -hmm. of theirs. But it probably also represents the closest that Aaron as a person, as a writer gets to a straightforward Christian understanding of his place
2: in the world. Yes. 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 Yeah. I totally see that. I totally agree with that. There's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's a certain, there is a certain immaturity, I think to the expression of his faith that's represented in, in a to B life. Um, I put but, it as naive Tay. Mm-hmm, yeah,
1: sure. Because people often take immaturity as a slight, and he's very mature for his age in his ability to express an idea. Of course. And, and, and to comprehend his emotional. It, it, uh, clearly, uh, you know, I have not been able to find definitive evidence of it, but apparently he was born in 79. So that makes him in his early 20s when this album was released. Yeah. So he was probably yeah, that 19 or right. 20 writing it. Mm hmm. Mm
0: hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I wasn't expressing it to this caliber back then, but I was very naive as to my opinion, thinking that my opinions would not change, that the things I knew would be static and constant. I might add more knowledge and ability to comprehend things, but what I already knew is is set in stone. And I think we see that in this is a somewhat unarticulated struggling between the faith that I believe is solid is going to get me through the rest of my life and that being almost diametrically opposed to how you have to interact with other humans, mm-hmm. specifically in a yeah. romantic relationship. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. I mean, there there's a kind of uh, individuality, I think, that's being expressed. Yes. In his faith, mm-hmm. where it's like all that matters is my relationship between me and God or your future, hopefully relationship right. between yep. you and God. Yep. And that's it. That's the end game. And that's. Going to be immediately negated <laughs> with the first track of the next album. It, I mean, it, I, and I think that this is, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, one of the things that really struck me just kind of doing the season, listening back to all the episodes as they were coming out, mm-hmm. is how nice it is to have this kind of point of departure now for. Aaron's spiritual journey or the narrator of the future albums, however we want to think about that. I mean, it is Aaron, sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, um, that we have this like, uh, sort of foundational spiritual schema in a way, um, that is going to serve as this backdrop, uh, that will be able to, I think kind of cast into sharper relief, his future spiritual development. I mean, especially, I mean, again, like I was saying that, you know, torches together is about living in a commune, right? right it, it's about, it's about communal faith, right? It's the opposite yes. in a sense of, um, of the sort of individuality, uh, individual salvation, individual relationship with God, you know, um, and, and so forth. It, it's, uh, you know a very different take on spirituality and it, you know I think that Catch for Us Foxes is, is going to be interesting uh, you know because you know as we've talked about there isn't this overarching narrative structure right. that we are going to be using it's um, it's going to be quite different. Try me <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, sure. Wh- whatever, whatever. Whatever we can find, I'm. I'm game. Um, and maybe people are listening right now, going like, "Oh no, I will send you my notebook." <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I, Please. Do. I will send you yeah. my theory. Yes. No. Do. Do send us your theories about yeah. Catch the foxes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but no, I think that there's there's going to be much more room to kind of dig into a very different side of Aaron's spiritual journey. I mean, you, you see this, uh, a much greater expression, I think both on his kind of feeling this more, more of an absolute dependence, I would call it on God. Mm. Um, You know, I think about uh, carousels for instance, right. Um, But then also uh, this kind of, acceptance or uh, a, a desire to kind of rest in uncertainty, right? Um, you think about Forward Letter, uh, part two, right, where um, the chorus is about doubters and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get there, right? The, this episode is yes. supposed to be about A to B life. But, yes, I have um, a lot of thoughts about that particular right, chorus. So, but so, but so, what yeah. I'm saying is, you know, to kind of put that into contrast with A to B life is that this has given us this very – I think clear picture of a a starting point for Aaron's spiritual life Mm -hmm, when the band is getting going. And it's going to be really nice, I think, to be able to see that, you know, by the time we get to untitled, um, I was just listening to Julia uh, the other, the other day and, you know, just thinking about the chorus to that song and like how complicated the imagery in that chorus is of, you know, standing on the shore, sinking like stones while on the shore into a made up ocean. Like, Oh my God, I can't like, it's going to be great to talk about, but like, it's so nice to have this, uh, this, yeah, this point of departure um, that we can kind of come back to and say like, wow, look at this compared to what he was thinking you know in 2001 or 2002
1: yeah. and i wanted to ask both of you as you know having come from or still being within something that fits under the very large umbrella term of evangelical culture like how well does that track with your own experiences of faith and doubt and and assurance and assurance in the unknown in the ambiguity and those of the people around you
0: Steven, do you want to start? <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I would love to. I I don't know that my life has tracked cleanly parallel with, with Aaron's experience. Of course, there's been very different ingredients going into it too. Yeah, I mean, his exactly. it's not like he grew up in a in a church attending sort of middle of the road right. suburban evangelical household. He had a very unique situation there. With, with his brother and right. his parents. <laughs> yep. um. So <clears throat> the, for me personally, because you asked, I think A to B Life hit me when it came out as being very relevant to the kind of emotional space that I was in. And like so many of the artists I listened to under the umbrella of Christian music, just the sheer fact that Jesus came up from time to time on it was enough of a stamp of safety for me that I felt good about listening to it. I'm like, some of this mm-hmm. sounds like kind of intense and out there, and like this is not the way I would express myself, but I can appreciate the emotional intensity of this. And I guess it seems to be Christian, so it's fine. And that's probably about as far as I could get <laughs> in 2002. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was yeah. a sophomore, junior in high school when it came out. Tracking on through through Ketchrus the Foxes on into Brother Sister, especially, I felt very on board and of a piece through the next two albums. There were, I mean, I and I even will tell my students now, like there are lines, especially from those two records, some stuff from It's All Crazy, that formed really bedrock pieces of my spiritual vocabulary, just the way that I understand the world, the way that I talk to people about God, the way that I pray, the way that I am, like I'm still a worship leader at a church and like there, I don't, I don't try to do like covers of Me Without You songs at church. That sounds (laughs) horrible. That's a little excessive Uh, even um, for us. uh, (laughs) In almost all cases. Um, but But... But I've been in church, and and I've had experiences where I like when I've not been up there, you know, singing, that like I've not been able to sing along with with everybody in the room. But there's a line from a "Me Without You" song that I know that I can sing in that moment, and so I just latch onto that and just repeat it. And those things, those things sank in really deeply in two thousand two, two thousand four, two thousand six. Yeah. Um, it's not exclusively that. I was listening to a lot of music. There's a lot of lyrics that became a part of who I am. absolutely. um and and some and something shifted so so i've i I've talked to before about the trajectory that it seems like there's a sort of a line you can draw from their first four albums, and then everything sort of blossoms out into something else for the last three. It stops being linear mm-hmm. and starts being much more. I don't know what the word is. Um,
1: yeah. Fluid is a word, but yeah. I don't know if it's the right one. Right, right,
0: right. Yeah. So it's it's hard. Like for the last three, it was harder for me to latch onto those and feel something personal. Now, I appreciated them as works of art. Yes. Very deeply. But they didn't speak to me in the same way. And I also was just getting to a point in my life where I wasn't looking to v- songs to inform my identity Mm. or my outlook on the world. Like some of that is just the timing of how old I happen to be by the time. 10 stories came out. I just, I wanted it to be awesome and beautiful. And that's the experience I had with it. And that's all it needed to be for me at that point. Does that make sense?
1: It totally, totally makes sense. Yeah.
2: Joel, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say similar, very similar experience. Like, um, a to B life for me was just a rad album. I <laughs> just, yeah. uh, I loved, uh, just driving around, listening to it, screaming it with my friends. I was a little bit older. Uh, I think it was like 2003 ish when I discovered them. So I was a sophomore between maybe my sophomore, and junior years of college. Um, and, yeah, I just remember it just hitting me as this, like, really great album. And that was a time where, for me, I um, I loved having, like, philosophical conversations. Like, I sort of, like, you know, at that point, I had no aspirations of getting a Ph.D. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like, that was sure. not on my radar at all. I wanted to be in a band and make that work somehow, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I was still going to college and stuff, but like, yeah, my head was not in academia at all. Um, Same. But I, but I also, <laughs> I also, I enjoyed philosophical conversations. I enjoyed um, going to church and and thinking about theological questions and yeah. that kind of thing. And and as that part of me began to develop, that was also along sort of in line just as Stephen was saying with the release of the next three records right so 2004 2006 um and then 2009 mm-hmm. uh, and yeah I in 2006 especially that's when I like really started reading things that um that began to shape my Uh, my philosophical and and religious world in significant ways. And it was stuff that was about uncertainty and doubt. Um, uh, I'll mention uh, James K.A. Smith's Who's Afraid of Postmodernism. James K.A. Smith is a philosophy professor at Calvin College, um, who, I mean, I'll say I do not agree with his reading of (laughs) these philosophers anymore, but at the time I was reading stuff where I was like, whoa, this resonates with me so strongly. And somehow me without you was part of that whole thoughtscape. Um, if you will, like there, you know, um, Aaron's kind of, uh, questioning of, of, about existence and does he exist? And, and, um, the the spider tracks on brother sister oh, yeah. also really hit me in a way just the simplicity of the confirmation of his belief and then you know i mean i'll i could see, there's a lot to say about the brownish spider yes <laughs> track and the disappearance of the spider and and belief and all of that but i mean that all of that really um struck me very, very hard. And then in 2009, that's when I started seminary. Um, hmm. and so I was finishing when, when it's all crazy came out, I was finishing my first master's degree in, in English and, uh, and had read all of this philosophy and, and literary theory and had all these thoughts, sort of new thoughts in my head about, how these things apply to my faith and um, being comfortable with uncertainty and doubt and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah. And then I uh, went to seminary. I was a youth pastor while I was in seminary. Um, and, and so, yeah, all, all those, uh, I would say just like Stephen, that there's this kind of this way in which me without use uh, discography kind of did mirror my own spiritual journey, or at least it was like this very welcome companion Mm -hmm. right along that path. And I would say that there is a large swath of evangelicals, or I guess, depending on how people identify ex-vangelicals, deconstructed religious people, whatever, you know, I, I mean, there's all kinds of labels for this sort of thing now. Um, I do remember when I was in seminary 2009 to 2000, I mean, I went to Fuller seminary, it's an evangelical, largest evangelical seminary in the world. Um, I found plenty of people who were interested in, you know, what, what is usually called theopoetics, right? This kind of more mm. artistic fluid, um, uh, non, you know, uh, uh, contingent way of understanding religion and faith and and spirituality, where um, uh, you're kind of combining a lot of these postmodern, philosophical, literary um, ideas with Christianity and and finding comfort in the uncertainty um, rather than discomfort, uh, and that's something that I think. Uh, you know, Me Without You contributed to quite a bit. I mean, I'm sure that there are lots of listeners who f- have very similar experiences um, and and maybe view, uh, you know, I feel like <laughs> Me Without You fans, um, you know, tend to be, if they grew up evangelical, they tend to have this way of thinking about their faith now. I'm not sure I've ever met a me without you fan who's like a militantly conservative (laughs) evangelical, you know, I mean, maybe they do exist, but it just, they tend to draw a certain kind of spiritual person, not just evangelicals, obviously, but sure. Sure. um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. and, And for, for anyone out there who's listening, who is like, not at all, on this trajectory with us, like if you grew up, you know, if if yeah,
1: yeah, I'm waving. It I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> no, you're in, right. In, but, insert sir, the ahead. graphic
0: sound of Nick's hand whooshing across the microphone. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so so whether you grew up in a in a fundamentally secular environment, or whether you grew up in a Jewish environment, or an Islamic environment, or literally anything else, I mean, those yes those are the sort of range of options that seem most directly biographically connected to this band we're talking about, but who knows? I, I mean, I, you, I I don't know who you are listening right now, but yeah. um, But man, this, this band's uh, expressive range with the lyrics and how it gets put through the music covers such a wide territory that, the individual experiences of the three of us talking cannot possibly cover what, what these songs must mean to you. So um, if you don't hear yourself in the kinds of stories we're telling um, that man, I, 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 I don't know. I just, I always, I want people to feel so welcome and so a part of this thing that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Me too. And if we're, and if we're saying stuff that's totally irrelevant to your experience this is an invitation at the end of this season, but on if you're in, in this for the long haul with us, let us know. Please send feedback. We have a yeah. number you yeah. can call in yeah. and, and yeah. voice
1: your alternative readings. And yeah. to put it slightly more bluntly, I mean, we're three white guys who are married to women. Yep. You know, like, if you are yep. someone of a different identity or a different, you know... I identify as bisexual, but I'm married to a woman. So I'm heterosexual passing, you know, like, please, please join us because. As we've just laid out, there's something for if you like this kind of music, even a little bit, there's something for everyone here, even if you are not at all spiritual whatsoever. And totally. so, so Stephen, you, you talked about your through line through the first four albums yeah. and then a blossoming. and yeah. it, that of course made me think of a bouquet because of who we're talking about. But that blossoming of where they go, you know, there's some explicit uh, references to astrology and astronomy mm-hmm. in in Untitled. and uh, so even that like progression and ex- exploration of various different types of, I don't want to say faith, but different types of spiritual engagement that just shows that there's nothing finite. There's nothing other than the way the narrator talks. And as we've explained throughout this whole album on A to B life, there's a little bit of the way I see things is the way it is. And then we immediately get, as Joel, you said, track one of album two, that's just blown out of the water. And I'm so excited (laughs) to get there. But my reason for bringing that back up is This isn't as much about an exploration of his faith as it is an exploration of what it means to be a person Mm. in in a sense. And and the use of faith is almost a vehicle for the exploration of that. So it's just if you're writing, I guess I'll say this to all of the secular folks who have avoided this band because they talk Mm. about Jesus in a couple of songs you're really missing out on an exploration of the full human expression through religious and spiritual exploration. And it doesn't mean you have to be evangelized to by it. Yeah. Right. I personally am more spiritual because of this band. I can say that mm. fully. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you have to be. Yeah. So anyway.
2: Yeah. No, I think that that's one of the, that's the, one of the greatest things about this band. That's why they are, so fantastic is because there are so many ways to experience them right and find meaning in what what it is that they do
0: Let's talk about big picture for for A to B life. Yes. Were we
2: correct?
0: <laughs> in our theories. Yes, irrefutably, Joel. <laughs> but really, I I mean uh, let me say this, because yeah, uh, I, I feel like whatever sort of theorizing about the the narrative structure or the connection to Kierkegaard's either or and all that is is um, sort of my fault, uh, here at the the tail end of it, I do not regret setting those up as interpretive frameworks. I think, I think it was really fun to listen to this album and think of it in those terms. Here's, here's where I stand, especially in relation to Kierkegaard and, and the aesthetic life and the ethical life, these ideas that we've, we've come back to over and over and over again at the end of the season, I am more convinced than I was at the beginning that interpreting this album through those lenses of of the aesthetic life and the ethical life is a, a valid and useful way to listen that makes the album experience more meaningful than if you didn't have them. At the same time, I'm also more convinced than I was at the beginning that the influence of that book by Kierkegaard had probably nothing to do with the creation of this album. Like I was curious to try from the start to see if it played out. And I went and I reread through either or kind of as we were going through the season. And man, that's a dense book. Um, (laughs) And, and I, and I just didn't, I didn't find the direct evidence. Like there's not any quotes from it anywhere. And there are quotes from plenty of other things but there's not quotes yeah. from that book, and you would think if that was, like, the sort of secret, you know, concept that was driving it all, that there would at least be something, like, some little snippet of words that would find their way in there, and I, I couldn't find yeah. a quote anyplace.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me just, in defense of, of Kierkegaard <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, please. we, we talk, I mean, because we we did say this, I think, in the overview episode or, or one of the earlier episodes right that in bringing up Kierkegaard right we weren't necessarily saying that um that the album for sure is based on on this idea right uh on either or um but i do think that kierkegaard's description of of the kind of uh uh conflict in a way between mm-hmm the aesthetic and the ethical life is useful for understanding what Aaron or the narrator is going through in this album um you know i think that there is a kind of there is a way in which uh uh kierkegaard's understanding of the kind of like youthful um aesthetic life a life living a life of pleasure yeah. without serious consideration or care for ethical decision making or starting a family or something like yeah that's exactly where people are when they are the age Aaron was when he wrote these songs um and exactly. so so yeah so I think it works out really really well in a, in a sense just as kind of uh, a framework for interpreting what's Happening and trying to make sense of on a deeper level. I mean, like you were saying, Nick, like this idea of you know explicating and excavating the human experience. Yes. Um. That's what Kierkegaard is trying to do in either or, uh, and I think that work helps us understand, can help us understand other sorts of artistic uh, artifacts. Um, yeah. so I don't, yeah. So I don't think that it has to be necessarily any, uh, you know, um, any kind it's of, not like, a, yeah, go ahead.
1: It's not a cipher for understanding the mind of Aaron writing this album per se, but like you just said, it becomes a very useful frame because he was just writing something that was relevant to, to put it in modern terms. 20 somethings grappling with faith and what it means to exist in a society that is not always congruent with the way you believe you should be to
2: yeah, have a religious or ethical life. Yeah. Right. And I think that, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to delve too deeply into Kierkegaard's <laughs> uh you know philosophy of religion because there's a lot to say about his view of of religion and the re- religious personality as opposed to ethical or aesthetic but because it came up on the facebook group uh earlier in the season i will just mention that i don't think that the a religious life as kierkegaard conceives of it is what the narrator of A to B life is in pursuit of at all. Um, I don't think so. Either. And I don't think that moving forward, that is necessarily a helpful way of understanding, uh, Aaron's spiritual journey or, or what he's, I, I mean, maybe I'll be wrong. Uh, you know, maybe we'll, you know, we'll encounter some, some lyrics or something, you know, in, in future seasons where, uh, I'll suddenly be like, oh wait, this is exactly yeah. like yeah. Kierkegaard's right. night of faith. But from where I'm sitting right now, it's too it's just too extreme of a position. Um you know, I mean I mean the just to put it as succinctly as possible for Kierkegaard, um, religion is irrational, which, you know, just means it cannot be comprehended by rationality. Uh it cannot be explained through rational logic or something like that. And the reason why it's irrational for him is because he wants to separate religion from ethics. In Kierkegaard's right. day, ethics and religion were both extensions of rational thinking. Um that mm-hmm. was sort of the way that you could defend religion against being kind of demolished by scientific rationality or something like that. Um and Kierkegaard Coming a generation after all those moves says, no, religion is not part of the rational faculties of, of our brains. It's totally irrational. So, for example, when God tells Abraham to uh to kill his son, there's no justifying that rationally. It's a wholly irrational request. And that yes. is what the leap of faith is for Kierkegaard, right, is stepping out and accepting that irrationality on faith entirely because that's all you can do. You cannot accept it rationally, right? It's oh, totally irrational. Oh God. So, yeah, <laughs> as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, anyway, so without going going too <laughs> too much deeper into that. I that I don't see I, I don't see Aaron necessarily embracing that or pursuing that line of thought with regard to religion just off the top of my head. Um, But uh, who knows? Maybe he does. But but I just wanted to put that out there because I know there had been some question about like, well, what about the religious person? And is Aaron pursuing that?
1: I think you can I think you can definitively say Aaron, the narrator, Aaron, the writer as narrator of this album is not pursuing the Kierkegaardian religious life in this album. Yeah. We can say that with a certainty, or as close to a certainty as you can get in this messed up world. Yeah, <laughs> but as the smoke king curled higher and higher, that that feels a little like the embracing of the irrational. Although we'll get yeah. there if the, if that's a yeah. longer conversation. No, King,
2: yeah. that, that's true. I I will, I will grant that that King Beetle <laughs> uh, definitely uh, raises some. Quite some some questions about this. I, I I mean in the um on the website, kind of the opening description of the podcast. If anyone's not read that yet, yes. is about King Beetle, right? And and yes. kind of the um experience of the ineffable, which another word for the ineffable is the irrational, right? right. That which right. cannot be put into language. Um, so yeah, so I I that that'll be interesting when we get there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me,
0: I I just. I'm, I'm ready and willing and interested to continue to let Soren Kierkegaard, uh, comment on this band yeah. as, as often, cause I, I just, I enjoy his writing. Um, I don't understand most of it and that's fine with me. <laughs> I, I, yeah. the experience of reading his books makes me happy. So I keep doing it, even though he seemed like a really, really sad dude, um yeah and so look at, at the band we're talking yeah. about no. <laughs> Sad boy, for sure so as yes. as anything seems relevant and comes up i'm going to continue bringing him into the conversation as we go please but with no expectation that there's going to be like a clear you know underlying motivation that the group is trying to somehow create this kierkegaardian you know yeah o- opus from star defended i just i just don't right. believe it
2: Yeah. And that's, yeah, I I think that that's the way to go. I mean, with, with all of these things like, um, you know, that, that we're bringing in there. Um, helpful either analogously or in, in some other way as like a framework for understanding the band.
1: Although Nirvana was exactly what they were referencing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So that was,
2: that was good on
1: us for bringing that up. That <laughs> that was yeah, If anyone hasn't yeah. read,
0: uh, there was a very recent um, interview that Ricky did with a, with a group that was concerned with preserving hearing. Um, and he's, I guess he's suffered from tinnitus in this later part of his career. And so he gave this interview uh, with an audiologist, I think, and and, mm-hmm. and talked about his early days getting into music and how uh, Nirvana, especially, also um, the Smashing Pumpkins, were two major influences that got him into wanting to play the drums in the 90s. And so and that, that, <laughs> that interview came out just a little bit after we, we dropped the episode where we were talking about these Nirvana drum references, and yes. for all the other yeah. sort of noodling around the entire history of music that uh, that we've subjected y'all to, um, that one was vindicating that at least our instincts were right.
1: Well, yeah. not only yeah. that, but it, 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 just another piece of the puzzle is, and we've acknowledged this several, t- this several times during our conversations this season, but as is true of many bands with interesting Front people, we spent a lot of time talking about Aaron mm-hmm. and not as much about the rest of the band. So it was also vindicating to see the influence another band, Nirvana, and other bands, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, etc., had on Ricky and how Ricky's influence was able to bring that yeah. reference into the rest of the band too. So, yeah, it, just a shout out to the rest of the band, past members, and for at least the co- yep. next couple of months, current members. Yeah. This was not just an errant. This is different than Radiohead being Tom York's baby, and everyone else is just able to like fill in the tapestry for him. This is a true communal act, Mm -hmm. even at
2: this stage, the A to B life stage. And I just want to mention because um, I I I love uh, getting comments, uh, you know, from you all listening. Um, emails, you know, whatever, uh, pointing out stuff that we missed. And um, I, there should be more of that, honestly. Yes,
1: I'm sure we're missing so much. Yeah.
2: So I just want to shout out Mark Hodgman on Facebook, who was like, what about Fugazi? We did not talk <laughs> about Fugazi at all. Um, and we definitely should have, uh, and I, I, yeah, I told him in my reply to his comment that, that I will take responsibility for that because I feel like I was sort of, uh, talking the most about like in a general way about musical influences and connections and so forth. And I talked a lot about Jay Robbins, uh, in the A episode and yeah, did not mention Fugazi. (laughs) Yeah. Um and so yes, that is our bad. Uh we should have mentioned Fugazi. Um and yes. that's the thing is that like there are so many things to talk about with regard to this band that obviously some things are going to fall through. But thank you mm. to Mark for uh for pointing that out. It was a very worthy a um, uh, critique, <laughs> yeah, uh, a lacuna, if you will, uh, to use the academic <laughs> term um, in the <laughs> podcast for sure. <laughs> yes. No,
1: I, and I would agree. The only reason I I didn't bring them up was they are signed they' are in in some ways kind of like a talking about this genre of music at all, fugazi's almost, like they go without saying as a, as a relevant influence for the whole genre of post-hardcore. Of yeah,
2: hardcore no, post-hardcore. of course. Yeah. I think he was saying, you know, he mentioned like specific songs, right. That were yep. like, the, yep. the Fugazi influence is so obvious. Um, and, and these, 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 yes. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm also, I think the other thing that, that we need to talk about in terms of, um, you know, we, we so we talked about Kierkegaard and and whether or not that panned out. And so I also want to hear from you guys about whether or not S- Steven's suggestion that the narrative structure uh of the record be reorganized, um, whether or not that worked out, do you think?
0: Well <laughs> I'll let I'll let you all answer that question and then I'll add Concluding thoughts. Okay, yeah. I do have lots yeah. to say about this. My, what I'll first interject is that I
1: don't know if Steven's insertion and our uh, general agreement with him is correct, but I do know that you're on to something with the non-linear structuring of the album because we have gotten several lengthy theories that I wish we had more time to read out. I wish I could wrap my head around it, it, yeah. shout out to Chris and Max in particular, who both sent us really nice thoughtful one via email, one on Facebook. Um, just breaking down how it's a narrative structure of the breakup, the expression of faith, etc, cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. So like we're on something there. And I do think the oddly placed bookends of A and B create this sense in which you could shuffle the deck. Maybe not completely randomly, but there's there's a lot of entry points you can have into this album. And actually, Stephen, I think you had, a, a or was it Joel, that had a funny story that we got a voicemail on? Oh, that oh you call
2: out. yeah. So Corbin from Riverside <laughs> sent us uh, a delightful uh, voicemail message uh, about his experience with uh, me without you and and getting into the band, but also mentioned that um, his copy for the longest time of A to B life was a burned CD that his friend made him uh, where the tracks were in alphabetical order. <laughs> so he would listen to both in- instrumental tracks first. And he thought it was so weird. Like it never occurred to him that the, they were in instrument, they were in uh sorry, alphabetical order, which yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, you in the age of Spotify, we we I feel like know the names of songs more because they show up on like whatever media device, device you're, you're listening yeah. to. But in when you had a CD player, like you didn't know if you just had a burned CD, like you would have to search that information out. So of course he's just listening, thinking it's weird that there are these two very similar instrumental <laughs> tracks back to back up front. Um, and then be still child. Followed by bullet to binary. I yeah. mean that that is a juxtaposition right there. Like that is wild. Yeah. That so <laughs> Corbin, thanks for, uh, for for sharing that. It's a really really great story. And I also want to say I'm very jealous because Corbin uh, said that uh, his brother in law um, is also a huge Me Without You fan, and they've bonded a lot over. Uh, over me without you, and I cannot say the same thing about my my in laws. Uh, me without you yeah. is not not a band on their radar, um, though I love them very much. Uh. <laughs> sure, sure. You might love them more if they embraced yes. one of your favorite bands. But. Yes, that would be <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Yeah. But no, probably not no, going to happen. Um, so yeah, Corbin, thanks for sending that in. But yeah, so the for me. Um, I do think Mm -hmm. that the narrative reshuffling works well. And the thing that I like the most about it is that it sort of refuses a ending to the story in a way. Um, When it's reshuffled in this way, the story sort of forces itself to loop back around. And – you know especially listening back to these the last couple episodes right which are supposed to be which are like you know temporarily the end of the the se- the of the album right when yep. you're just listening to it you know it ends with the cure for pain and then mm-hmm. the secret track um there is a sense in which uh the cure for pain is this sort of nice narrative conclusion where you have, uh, you know, the narrator um, sort of coming to some kind of acceptance, it seems, of right. the end of this relationship, right? Um, where I used to say, or where she used to say, I miss you, now I don't, right? And then kind of turning back to this um, uh, uh, th- this idea, this kind of comforting idea, right, of her, um, you know, like sugar into tea pouring herself into God essentially right right um but on our theory right that that ending is refused right because it then goes back to the narrative continues with bullet to binary right and there's this really I mean it's a three song stretch of him going back and sort of relapsing in a way. Um, and and the relationship doesn't die, right? It's like right. he he. It's like he wakes up the next day and he's like, "Oh man, no, I, this is, I'm not over this," or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, um, and that just feels it. It feels more human, right? Um, that that it's we cannot will the end of the relationship, right? We cannot decide uh, you know, let go and let God, as they say. Uh, and then it's just all okay. It doesn't work that way. Right. Human psychology doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And, um, this, you know, structuring the narrative in the way that we did, I think allows for that reading to really shine through in a way that it wouldn't necessarily, um, and uh, I just want to mention, Stephen, uh, you uh, made, like, one long track, right, of, of the whole album sort of reorganized in this, and it's awesome. <laughs> it is, especially it because really I just, cool. yeah, I, I, I wish you all could, could hear this, because um, the way that you kind of fade in uh, or kind of blend the cure for, end of Cure for Pain into uh, Bullet to Binary works amazingly well. Um, And it it actually produces this urgency of, oh damn, this isn't over yet Mm -hmm. in my mind, right? I I thought that I had willed myself to comfort and I was wrong, right? The way that that you cut it so that the drums hit, like right as Cure for Pain and all the noise is is ending, it gives you that sense. Like I was listening to it it just earlier today and I was like, whoa. This is it, it made me feel exactly what I had been thinking yeah. about, and maybe that's confirmation bias. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, of, co- of course, it is. There, everything is. But it really, but, it, yeah, it was really. And I also loved how you, uh, where you cut in the secret track. Yeah, right. That the secret track doesn't come after the cure for pain, but it, it is the thing that sort of uh, joins the the two ends of the circle yeah. together. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it's just really, really. Because when I first started listening to it, and I realized like it was ending with the secret track, I was like, "Oh," or, or sorry, it was uh, beginning with like the end of the yeah. secret track. So <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting choice." Uh, you know, I wonder why why that, why the secret track into A, but then it it totally makes sense, especially given our discussion of the secret track right. in the in the last episode um, as this kind of alternate alternative possibility yeah. right um yes yeah it's, it's just so that so i really love it personally um and, and i'll say that you know uh in uh max's email to us you know asking about how we're going to reconcile the circular narrative theory with the actual structure of the album i mean i think that's how right that yeah that that it's um it's circular precisely because like it doesn't uh it makes it a circle right it it doesn't allow the the narrative to actually end it produces this loop of uh recollecting right and going through the trauma again um and and thinking that you have sort of forced yourself to be okay and then and then no (laughs) right yeah um Yeah, so I I think it works out really, really well. I'm waiting for Steven to jump to jump in and, and tell us that we're wrong. Yeah, please go. <laughs> okay, so here's
0: so here's here's what I think.
2: <clears throat>
0: I want so deeply in general for every album I listen to to have a unifying theme and structure and narrative sequence. And I know some people when they're making records care about that stuff and they're trying to yeah. do it plenty of people don't at all and and there's no necessary correspondence between a, an artist trying to make something that all fits together and the listener perceiving everything fitting together or vice versa right um <clears throat> my i've mentioned this before i think uh one of my professors in college uh, a guy named jeff markley who taught recording studio techniques said something that I, I think about all the time and he said every album is a concept album even if that concept is here's the latest 10 songs we wrote <laughs> right <laughs> and, um, yeah. there's there, there's something <laughs> there's something in the the creative process that binds together the work that you're putting out yeah and there's a very wide spectrum of how much intentionality goes into that so Yes. So here, reflecting at the end of the season about this particular album, thinking about the narrative structure in particular, when I look at the lyrics to this album, I do not see a straightforward narrative. Having, like, having had the sense of, of things beginning after this instrumental called A and moving forward up until this everything was beautiful and nothing hurt there are guideposts that are useful to me, but that's about as far as we get in terms of actually following a story that has a sequence of events that happen in a recognizable sure, yeah. order. Right. And, and for most songwriting, for most albums out there, even albums that intend to be narrative, that's actually about as much as you ever get. I mean, right. I mean, you think of a, of a record that is really, really trying to tell a story in a straightforward fashion like the Who's Tommy is this sort of classic example, and and Pete Townsend is trying really hard to tell a story. I've actually never seen the film version, so if anyone out there has watched that, and if that story makes sense, sure. fine.
2: I, it does. Okay,
0: good. On I yeah. I love that album Cla- Quadrophenia. Too. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. that album, but I don't have a sense of of actually a straightforward plot. In Tommy, I have a sense of characters who have certain feelings and those feelings are kind of tied to responses to other people's feelings at other times, but like, it's not. And that's songwriting is a different medium than writing a novel. It just is. is. And so for me, reflecting on it now, having gone through the whole album and, and looked really closely at all this stuff, I will say as a musical experience, Gentleman feels as much like an opening track as Bullet to Binary does. That was something that really came forward when I put mm-hmm. together that re-edit that, I, that Joel was just talking about in a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Man, coming out of, of the track A into Gentleman is such a great way mm-hmm. to start an album, if that's where you want to start thinking about it. And yeah, I yep. still think that opening line of Gentleman, We Never Met, You and I, is a really cool unexpected way to say opener yeah yeah to say like once upon a time (laughs) um
2: right it's a really great
0: opening line and i think that ending where everything was beautiful and nothing hurt does with where have you gone my love is a really great last line and then to play the connect the dots between there you have to do a lot of loop de loops and and drawing you know lines back over themselves, and you get to the end, and it's this big tangle from the beginning to the end. There's not if for, as, as straightforward as the title "A to B Life" sounds, <laughs> and like drawing a straight yes. line from one point to another. That is not the experience of listening to these lyrics. But I think yeah. if you, it's almost like looking at a magic eye picture, if you like, just sit back and let it happen to you. To me, there is a narrative sequence that emerges out of this emotional texture that comes across the whole thing. And I think this, yeah, ab- this is almost too obvious to even need to say out loud. But but here's, here's how I read the narrative sequence as it is, is that there is a relationship between two people, a man and a woman in their late teens, early 20s. One is coming from a perspective of sort of a religious fervor. The other one is not their relationship becomes increasingly physical, and the one in this state of religious fervor uh, feels guilty about that. But he also increasingly feels guilty that she is not of the same religious persuasion that he is, and so he forms a plan that he is going to both see to her salvation and then marry her once they are sort of in a spiritually compatible state. That proves Utterly impossible because she's not interested in either of those projects and so right. um or at least she's not interested in the salvation pro- project of it there, there there's a line you know when when dreams of rings of flowers fade that to me is the is the closest indication we get that she might have actually been interested in, in marrying him if it weren't for the impediments in the relationship that that sort of drive the tension of yeah. the whole thing maybe yeah maybe I
1: would agree I would agree. That's the closest we get to a confirmation yeah. anyway.
0: Um, yeah. <clears throat> and so, because he realizes that that the state of the relationship is f- making it both impossible for her spiritual sort of union with God and their his, her union with him in marriage, that he creates an alternate strategy. I have another plan which is to remove himself from the equation in in the hopes that by abandoning the hope of marriage, that her union with the divine rather than with himself can still go forward. If he's out of the picture.
1: Right.
0: Does that sound like, that. and the question, the question
1: of how he removes himself from the, from the picture is one we discussed kind of, yeah. home, kind of silencer. Yeah. And uh, I liked that conversation yeah. a lot. I still do. I, I don't really know if suicide was actually on the table, but, removing himself from the picture is a good yeah, way to put it yeah, in the,
0: in the most them. general sense um yeah does that yeah. sound right I, I mean i feel like i've been assuming yeah, that I think story it does. from the it, beginning it does to me
2: yeah i yeah. think it does and i think that i think that what's interesting right about the way that that it gets communicated is that it you're right that it's not you know it's not communicated in this straightforward sort of plot driven this happens then this happens then this happens it's more like an actual memory yeah. right or recollection yeah. or something which those things start and stop they yes. they skip around they repeat in different ways they um and so i you know again that's that's maybe <laughs> more more retconning to sort of justify our, our reading of it but i think that it i think that it could work like it's We are not. I'm pro retcon if it's effective. Sure, I mean that's that's how Tolkien
1: wrote his whole everything. Right. No, I I
2: agree, and and I think that you know we're not we're not saying that A to B Life is a concept album. Like a concept album is way more straightforwardly plot driven, and um, you know could like be. Uh, A a musical, like Tommy, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Or
1: or Coed and Cambria's first five albums. Yeah,
2: Yeah, or uh, Armor for Sleep's What to Do When You're Dead, if anybody's familiar with that. That, uh, That album is, I mean, really, really, like, hit you over the head with the plot. Like, every song is the next sequence of this story that's being told and you, you like can't miss it. Like mm-hmm. when you listen to right. that album front to back, but this is something that's different, right? It's um, there's, it, there's a
1: unifying concept to all of the songs. And I think you could argue that there are recurring characters, but it is different than right. A and rock I, opera. Right. And I,
2: I, I realize when I say, it's not a concept album that <laughs> that negates Stephen's <laughs> point earlier that every album yeah. is a concept album, like on some level. Yeah. Right. But I mean, like in, in the sense that people normally use the, yeah. the word concept album, like correct. Yeah. There's yeah. And uh, to
1: pick, to pick that up. So I have, I have two things to say to affirm our general loosey goosey definition of this as a unified concept ar- around this relationship—I think that's what we're talking about—is the the existence of and the ending of this relationship is what unifies all of these tracks. They're they're all talking about the same general mm-hmm. event series of events. The first is the, the expression of humanity through it all, like you just said, Joel. It is like actual memories. You know, we talked about—I think this was in the overview episode. About Memento, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Christopher Nolan's Memento, yeah, and, yeah, and how and how misremembering certain things can lead you down the, you know, if you if you latch on to an obsessive thought of what you believe to be true, that becomes more true in your mind than the actual event that happened. And we we got into that in length between right. things that were actual quotes versus well, I I certainly think that that was a quote about the one about the feminine character but it could have been god it could have been the dad right you know we had all sorts of fun conversations there so it is an innately human expression and at least in my experience and i find this to be true i advise people when they come to me for like hey how'd you figure it out you seem to have your everything figured out or more so than i do it's when you accept that you do not you have to stop thinking you have it all figured out in order to actually figure it out. If that makes any sense at all. Mm -hmm. When, when you're holding on to a breakup and you are fixated on what did I do wrong? What did the other person do wrong? You kind of have to let go of that stuff to actually see the learning that you're going to get from it. Yeah. And so that goes into my second point, which is the postmodern nature of this entire Think this entire project we're doing and Daddy of Postmodern Fiction, Kurt Vonnegut, which we were we had to bring up. There's very explicit <laughs> references yeah. to him, yeah. And I, I, without going into more Breakfast of Champions uh, spoilers, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that that discussion really unlocked something for me, which is this this feeling of unstuckness. Like how, mm-hmm. how do you experience something? We as human beings experience, experience time linearly, but if you didn't have to, what does that mean? And that's kind yeah. of, we got a microcosm of that in this
2: yeah.
0: circular narrative. So an interesting thing about the ending of the track sequence as it's given to us is that it is in B flat. The, the note B flat in equal-tempered tuning, is identical to the pitch A-sharp. And so in The Cure for Pain, we get the key area of B-flat slash A-sharp. If you want to think of this cyclically, coming back around again to the beginning and going up until everything was beautiful and nothing hurt, the note A-sharp is, in fact, the note that most definitely... Defines the fact that we're resolving this into B minor because it's the leading tone of the key of B minor. It's mm-hmm. that it's that note that that takes us right up into it. So if you want to add a layer of meaning that somehow B flat represents the narrative, the narrator's intention to skirt having to make a decision of either A or B. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> the. The. Um, the trappy sets catches his leg. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he yeah. tries to land on this in-between space. And in fact, that is the very thing that pulls him into the resolution that ends up ending the cycle, mm. if you want to think about it, ending in B minor. Mm. I
1: don't think we're just being funny to apply the wisdom of all circles to this. There, <laughs> there is a circular nature to this album and that makes it a more exciting, more interesting piece of art to engage with. when when you look at it that way.
0: I'll say this, to dovetail on that about the circular nature of it, especially bringing up all circles, the one thing, not in my own kind of reworking imagination, but in the actual hard evidence of the contents of Me Without You's output that continues to make me feel like there's some justification for thinking about everything was beautiful and nothing hurt as a kind of ending to this project is that image of the compass from john dunn because that mm-hmm. image and that poem are yes. going to come back the band isn't done with them yes and and we're going to see yes. that they like to use that as a concluding thought and so the, the fact that that comes mm-hmm. as a concluding thought in track four rather than in track 12 makes me think that maybe down the road if if they had the opportunity to resequence this which Bands don't do that sort of thing. Maybe maybe given their proclivities and, and the way they end other albums, that maybe they would have gone back and, and reshuffled the tracks and put everything was beautiful as the last thing. I don't know. It's hard to say. There's a quote, I think, from, from Kierkegaard, who knows where it's lifted in, in all of his little sayings and so forth, that life is only understood in reverse, but it has to be lived forward. Yes. Mm. That's kind of my point.
1: Yeah. Applying the, the postmodern perspective, it might not be the entire thing in reverse. Like, ah, now that I know all the things I didn't, it, James Baldwin said something like that. Like, if I know anything and I don't know much, and then Maya Angel- he was in an interview with Maya Angelou and she said, and I'm sure that's not much. And they had a little <laughs> joke because they were both they were both long in the tooth right. when they were having that conversation. <laughs> and it's just the realization of like how little you actually know. And if you knew how little you actually know when you're in the really not knowing anything stage, oh my gosh, how, how incredible, (laughs) how, how much better you would live through life with living with childlike wonder and discovery around (laughs) every turn rather than the false certainty that we often have, especially here in the, in the West.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a quote (sighs) I want to read from either or. (laughs) <laughs> Which we've done very little right. quoting of, e- even though we've we've kind of yeah. pulled it in. This is at the almost the very end of part of part one of of this two. So often it's published as two separate volumes. Even um, the last chapter of part one of of either or is uh, is called the Seducer's Diary. If you've never read it, uh, don't get your hopes up. It's not a very uh, <laughs> Sort of, not very no, no, it's psychological warfare. It's, it's like, I don't know, <laughs> 60 pages of somebody suggesting how he's going to get in the good graces of this girl's family. And with the implication that he's going to become engaged uh, and that before they actually get married and he gets entangled for life, they're going to consummate the relationship, and he knows that as soon as that happens, he's going to get out of it and never talk to her again. That's his plan from day one.
1: He's a rake, to use the uh, to use the nineteenth century term,
0: and that's exactly how it unfolds. Uh, and and we get this really terse two paragraphs at the end of it all. We don't even get like the love scene or whatever. That's not part of the story. He, You can see that the dates in his diary skips over that day and reflecting afterwards is like, well, that's done. I'm going to move on and find somebody else now. Like, it's so callous and cold and hideous the way that it comes across in this thing. Mm. And But in this last tiny little reflection at the end, this is a quote from from Johannes who is like three layers in of pseudonyms. So so Kierkegaard wrote this <laughs> book and he has a frame narrator who like found some papers. And in the papers of one of those people, he found a document that that guy didn't write, but he found somewhere else. And that's who supposedly we're hearing from. Okay. And he says, at the end of it all, nevertheless, it would really be worthwhile knowing whether one couldn't poetize one out of a girl Whether one couldn't make her so proud that she imagined, it was she who had wearied of the relationship. And I don't know if that means anything to either of you, but it's an interesting dynamic Mm. with a very different kind of relationship, to be sure. But this idea, and I don't know, poetize? Like, I don't know what Danish word is being translated. I don't speak that (laughs) language, but... it would really be worthwhile knowing whether one could poetize oneself out of a girl somehow through, you know, I'm I'm not sure he means poetry in terms of strict verse, but like the artful use of language. Yeah. That's how I read that somehow to create a sense that she feels like she wanted out of it. And it wasn't actually like, she doesn't perceive that it was his fault at all.
1: Right. We're we're just talking about gaslighting before uh, the film gaslighting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's that. Uh, I, there's a lot of, of the kind of unsettling emotional dynamics in that book that I feel like makes some sense yeah. in the album. But again, there's no direct quotes that I could find anywhere. You mentioned before you know mm-hmm. that, that this, this book by Kierkegaard doesn't function as a cipher for this album. There is no single piece of anything else that functions as a cipher for any of these records. Um,
2: right. No.
0: But man, it's really fun to listen to them if you've got, if you've got a set of glasses on and you can try on different pairs of glasses yes. and see how the view is different. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I promise we're going to keep doing that. Yes, we will. So
2: <laughs>
1: Unapologetically. We haven't, we have enough people telling us enough people like it. So I, I think we're, yeah. <laughs> we're safe to say yeah. that's good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but if y'all, if y'all want to let us know that you, you have like a better interpretive framework for, for reading Please. these texts, let us know. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, like, just as a listener, I want to listen to it and have a different way to appreciate it, too. So. Me, too. <laughs> totally. Me, too. Yeah. Yeah. I want to jump ship and talk about two other things musically because I've had so much to say musically on this whole thing. And yeah, I, as, as with everything else, I don't suspect the band was doing this stuff, but because there's some real, like when I went into this album, I didn't have high expectations for what I was going to find in the music. I knew that it was exciting and compelling and evocative. But I thought it was like a, a band in their early days of just trying to hack it out and and just like, okay, let's just play loud and aggressive and let somebody yell over the top of it. and Drop D power chords. Drop yep. D power chords. Mm-hmm. That's the way Aaron talked about it in this interview I mentioned way back when, like 10 years after it came out. That was his perception of yep. what they were doing. And I was so shocked. Yep. Even though I'm the one who's been blabbering about all the intricate hidden A's and B's all over the place and how these interesting modulations and stuff. I, like, that's been a, an utter surprise to me every single episode. But here at the end, there's two more pieces of music from the classical canon that I think have something to say. And and one of them is, uh, is Richard Wagner's Tristan Unisolda. I know I keep mentioning Wagner and keep apologizing for it, but here we go. <laughs> so I, I think that there's an interesting connection between the big picture musical expression in A to B life Mm -hmm. and this opera music drama, as Wagner would call it, Tristan und Isolde. Uh, I don't think Aaron was listening to it, (laughs) but the, the story of Tristan und Isolde is a kind of a love story. It's not quite a breakup, but it's about two people that hate each other at the beginning. Um, this, this man, Tristan, is, is coming to capture, he sold it, and actually bring her back to be married to King Mark. Um, I don't remember who he's the king of at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> but she's being taken against her will to marry somebody. Um, she has a friend mix up a, a love potion, except that she thinks it's a death potion. She, th- she thinks it's a poison. So she plans to take this poison, have him take the poison and just both die. And that's her only way she sees of getting out of this marriage. She doesn't want to be in. Um, But something goes wrong. The friend mixes up a love potion instead. Uh, Tristan and Isolde both drink it. And they both instantly fall madly in love with each other. And that happens in the first act. And there's two more acts of them just gushing about how much they love one another. Uh, Eventually they both die by the end of it anyway. But in this, this, otherworldly ineffable they sort of fade into the fabric of the universe because they love each other so much but they but the, <laughs> the last scene is called lebes Tod, which is just love death yeah. and that, so it's it's long it's complicated people have spilled thousands of pages of ink over trying to make sense of this work of art and many 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 of those pages have been written about a chord that happens in the first couple of measures of this piece. The chord goes like this. Hmm. I will spare you... My summary of what commentary I've read and what I've read is just the first grain of sand in an entire desert of discussion of (laughs) that opening phrase. (laughs) Hmm. Why it matters for A to B life is that opening phrase begins on the note A. That's the first pitch you hear in the opera. The first three notes you hear are an A, an E, and an F which happen to be the underlying first three pitches of, of bullet-to-binary. Okay. A bullet-to-binary opens with an A and an E, and then the bass moves down to an F. So you get this cluster of those three notes hanging out together that is, is the total landscape of bullet-to-binary. Um, that It doesn't form a straightforward triad, it's just kind of this, this thing. And that's what people talk about the opening of Wagner, is that there's this non-triadic harmony. So Wagner opens, And what we get in this passage is that A F E fragment and then two harmonies that are that are that contain non-resolved tritones. So mm-hmm. in A to B life, we have this thing in bullet to binary with an A, an E, and an F at the beginning, same way that Tristan begins. And then the next part, the next way this phrase continues, um is, is a pair of a couple of tritone-rooted tone clusters. The second one, very clearly, which works with a tritone resolving out, the, the note in the bass is an E natural, the note in the upper voice is a, is a B flat, they're a tritone apart, and, and it resolves out from a tritone to a perfect fifth, the same way that Gentleman and uh, Be Still Child do. Okay. So there's some of those same hmm. gestural tendencies in this opening here. Hmm. It's interesting in its own right. It's totally accidental, but interesting to me. The thing that makes this pay off in just my own fantasy of how all this music's connected <laughs> is to listen to the end of Tristan Unisolda. Isolde. I promise you, I've never listened to this opera straight through. At some point I intend to, but it's about four and a half hours long, and <laughs> And it never resolves. So we talked plenty in this album. I think there was a moment of me just throwing off a bunch of letter names. And then, Joel, you did a really like helpful summary to the audience of what we're getting at is that there's a lot of non-resolution in the music. Yes. It sounds like yes. it's going to resolve, and it doesn't quite do mm-hmm. that. Yes. So that is basically the the whole definition of the experience of listening to this music, uh, is that it, it just keeps... Pulling you forward and then not resolving anywhere—that's actually pretty similar to how the the seducer's diary from from either or mm. feels to read too. Mm. Um, but the very 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 ending, more than four hours after the start of that little figure. So four and a half hours after that opening, Mm -hmm. here's the conclusion you get at the very end. This is like the last little minute postlude after all the singing is done. what the last chord is? A B. It is. Yeah. Oh, what do I win? B major, if I had to guess. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's a B major. Well, hot diggity. <laughs> so this gigantic opera about these two characters entangled in this complicated relationship that involves love and death um, begins on an A, and a very long time later... The only resolution you get, because all the music is just tense, anxiety-ridden, non-resolution for over four hours. The only resolution you get is in the last, like, 30 seconds. And it's a B major chord. So you move from A to B, and that's that's Tristan and Isolde. Wow. Wow. And the way you get there... Is actually by doing what... A to B life refuses to do. So in *Gentlemen*, you have an A to D sharp tritone resolves out to a perfect fifth. Then you move up to a C to F sharp tritone that resolves out to a perfect fifth. The next track, if it was following that sequence, would be an E to A sharp or B flat tritone. Right. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. That would resolve out. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Which Me Without You doesn't do. Right. But... It is how Tristan ends, is an E to an A-sharp or B-flat tritone. And he just keeps walking it up, and it lands very satisfyingly on a B-major chord. Hmm. So it's this thing, whatever you want to say about that, it's the thing that the band somehow refuses to do by jumping into We Know Who Our Enemies Are instead that would have landed in B-major, and it just doesn't. Hmm. So... That's my funny
2: side theory about all that. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I mean, I think that it It is, you know, obviously, as we've said, there's no intentionality. But there is some intentionality in terms of, like, I think that they probably sensed, right, the avoidance of
0: the sound of
2: of resolution. Like, um, you know, I, I think... A lot of post-hardcore bands do try to avoid that kind of satisfying. They live in that space, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So I think it's it's a, such an interesting juxtaposition, you know, to kind of hear what that resolution sounds like in a piece of music, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's fascinating.
0: The, the one other classical reference that I'll um, inflict on you <laughs> uh-huh. is Gustav Mahler's Second Symphony. It has the nickname of, of the Resurrection Symphony. And um, for all you... Mahler heads. Mahler super fans out there, you'll know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> oh my um, gosh. <laughs> G- Gustav Mahler's an interesting character. I feel like... He he lived in a in a funny parallel spiritual world in his own life. He grew up in a he grew up in a, in a Jewish family, um, but for social reasons converted to Christianity as a young man, and was utterly disillusioned by the experience. and And by the end of his life, came to this sort of all embracing, uh, very broad spirituality that that it follows a. a a strikingly similar trajectory <laughs> to the kind of story we see uh, in *Me Without You*'s catalog. Yeah. I promise I'm not going to keep making every album about some Mahler symphony, but I but I think there are some meaningful parallels in his experience. And even by the end of Mahler two, this symphony that I'm about to play you a clip of, um, there there is a kind of surprising embrace where he's exp- the whole symphony. He has this program underneath it where he's expecting Judgment Day. And there's these horns that come in, and they're like, they're supposed to represent like the end of the world and all this. And then what, what Mahler then gives us, and the a choir comes in and actually sings lyrics at the end of this mm-hmm. thing, is this shocking surprise that where all he expected was judgment. What he found was this utter warm embrace from God at the end, which I feel like is. It tracks somewhat with how how we've talked about the ending of this album, that there's this sort of surprising turn yeah. in The Cure for Pain mm-hmm. that, again, maps somewhat on onto this kind of narrative twist. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in, in the Mahler Symphony, this is the, the, the sort of fun part of it. At the end of the first movement, there is a specific instruction that he gives to the conductor, to the ensemble, uh, that is unlike anything else in... The repertoire that I know of. So let me just play the ending of the first movement uh, of of Mahler two. Here it is. So that big, aggressive, chromatic descent follows about 20 minutes of music that is incredibly uh, high energy, high anxiety. It's supposed to depict a kind of a heroic figure struggling against death. Okay. Um, and, and Mahler thought that that experience was going to be so overwhelming to the audience that it didn't make sense to then just like jump immediately into the next movement of the piece. And so there's this instruction, you can see it written in the last page of of movement one in the score, uh, hier folf eine Pause von mindestens fünf Minuten, which is, this is followed by a break of at least five minutes. So just thinking about the way that A to B life ends, that there's this really intense mm. emotional experience of, of struggle. And instead of having this acoustic track come right at the end, you literally get a break of at least five minutes. Five
1: minutes and 10 seconds. Yeah. Oh, boy. And then you have
0: this really soft, sort of yep. calming resolution to the whole thing that happens afterwards. <laughs> oh, my God. So here's how, how the second movement of, of that Mahler symphony starts after a break of at least five minutes. yeah it's it's dance music I mean for his own time that would have been like his version of like popular music like this is something you just go out and have fun with your friends and dance to this somewhere like mm-hmm. I don't know that there's much to say about it but again there was there was a similar impulse I do not believe there's a line of influence but an interesting similar impulse that these two things the main bulk of A to B life all of tracks one through 12 and then this acoustic track that's sort of hidden at the end, need some breathing room to work together.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, no, I, I actually totally buy, buy that reference because one thing I've been pondering since we started talking about the narrative structure and, and the, the layout of the album as a whole is regardless of what we think lyrically and sonically in terms of resolution or the lack thereof, just from a pure listener perspective, emotional experience the cure for pain feels like the end of the album and Mm -hmm. bullet to binary makes pretty good sense as the start of an album it's a rip-roaring interesting entrance oh yeah sure i uh, gentlemen could just as easily start it so i think that still holds out but the way they wrote the songs they make sense in the order they that we got them right
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep
1: that being said the use of the two instrumental tracks, the use of, I think it's five minutes and 10 seconds, maybe it's five minutes, 13, whatever, at least five minutes. I really like that. It's at least five minutes and we got at least five. (laughs) Yeah. There was no intentionality, but we are all swimming in the same relatively congruous cultural soup. It makes sense. The comparison holds. And again, all of these are frameworks, not, assertions that this is definitive it's just a means for us to interpret this thing that we love yeah and so i i love that you did that yeah
0: if you want to read this album cyclically and if you just look at the lyrics and don't think about the long musical outro at the end of the cure for pain, if you just look at the lyrics and read the ending of the album, then back around to the beginning, you get this surprising sequence where after this image of, of her pouring like sugar into tea, the last words he says are, Jesus, have mercy on us. Yeah. And then the next words he says are, let us die, let us die. And dying, <laughs> we reply, oh, don't you tell us about your suffering. Mm. So cycle this back again. If if you have this image of him saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. Let us die. Let us die. Hmm. Don't you tell us about your suffering. Wow. What a different way to read the statement, Jesus have mercy on us.
2: Gosh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Gosh, I yeah. don't even. Oh, man, that opens an entirely new can of worms. Stephen, sure this does. is supposed <laughs> to be the final wrap up episode, not the <laughs> <laughs> It wow. ends where it begins, though. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, that is uh, an incredible revelation to conclude <laughs> on. See, it doesn't end. We won't allow no. a conclusion. <laughs> no, even you know, the album doesn't, and neither do we. So, there's yeah. something to ruminate on till next season. Yeah. Keep listening and let yourself be surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's probably a good idea to wrap up this uh, overview episode just by saying thank you to everybody yeah. who's been listening. Uh, the response has been, I think, beyond <laughs> what any of us thought was yeah. going to happen. Um, and uh, it's just been really, really fun to interact with y'all um, on social media and and through email and voicemails and and everything so uh thank you for the encouragement and the support um it's been a total blast to do this season
1: yeah i couldn't agree more and all i would add is thank you to the both of you (laughs) for what you have done for my own personal reading and the ability this whole thing started i posted on the fox's facebook group saying does anyone know of a podcast? And I was I was fishing. I will fully admit I was fishing, saying, I would really like to do a podcast about these guys, but I just don't know enough. Uh, and so <laughs> I thank you both for taking my bait.
0: <laughs> because Oh, yeah. you're welcome. I, I was wanting to do one, too. I just didn't have anyone to kick me in the pants to actually keep working on it. Yes. So I was so thankful that that this came about and somehow the three of us found each other and it just worked yeah cool looking forward to next season we'll catch you next time Okay, we'll forget it. Okay, so we'll cut all that stuff out. Uh, and I'll just say this, and I've got some media pulled up in the media player. And if I need to edit in, like, a little demonstration on the keyboard later, I will. I'm actually just going to play it now, and you all can pretend like you hear what I'm doing. And it will give me a guideline yeah, we'll for, like, record, what uh, I need to edit yeah, in. We'll
1: record uh, <laughs> stock. Mmm, uh,
0: yes! Ooh. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> How lovely. Yeah. Fogger <laughs> is my favorite. I totally hear that. Yes.
1: yes,
0: yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So here we go.